Hi, this is Jonathan Clements, Director of Financial Education at Creative Planning here in Overland Park, Kansas. And with me is Peter Malouk, the president of the firm. And we are down the middle. Here we are for another podcast, Peter. And now it's history time. So we were talking before we sat down and started recording this about what it was like in the early days of Creative. I mean, you took over the firm in 2004. Along came this nice event, 2008, from Peak to trough, the market fell 57% as measured by the S&P 500. What was it like at that point? The first 10 years of my career was fascinating because you had the the tech bubble, 9-11, and 08, 09. These are three of the worst bear markets in history. It would bear markets a 20% drop or more. All of those were well over 40%. So you're talking about three very severe ones in a very short period of time that still colors the, the thinking and the way that people invest today. Uh, particularly the 2008 one. You know, in, in 04, we were managing less than $100 million, and it was very easy to you know, talk to every client and get them through those first issues. But when you got to 08, 09, uh, we were, at the time, it was big. Is it certainly not big today? We were managing about $500 million, uh, in assets. We had a, a few hundred clients. Um, and I think the way we invested made a lot of sense for them. I mean, basically, our approach is we are needs-based. So we have the money they need in the short run is never at the mercy of the market. And so I didn't have to call up anybody and say, hey, I need you to skip this month's distribution <laughs> or not spend this much or, oh, my goodness, the stocks are down whatever percent. And so we, we're going to have to change plans. I never had to have that conversation. And so, I mean, th- that was the first very big positive. And, you know, back then there were not a lot of people doing uh, that, uh, that approach to investing. The second thing we were doing, and I think way out of a lot of folks, is we were very index heavy. We were using ETFs at the time, I believe. We were the largest holder of Vanguard ETFs in the country, probably of any independent um, RIA. And I remember you know, very vividly when our, our representative there told us that, me being surprised. But you know, I looked, you know, there's only about 100 firms. There were 500 million or more, so it wasn't that crazy since that was heavily what we were in. And we were very aggressive at tax harvesting, which was something that you know, really a lot of people weren't doing back then. And we were able to sell off some bonds and buy stocks as the market was declining. That's called opportunistic rebalancing. Instead of rebalancing at the end of a year or end of a quarter or never rebalancing, we were doing it when the opportunity presented itself. Now, that's not brain surgery, but you fast forward to 2009, typical person has losses on their tax return, but is now back to break even in their portfolio, even though the market itself doesn't break even for several years, simply by rebalancing while the market's down. You might remember the beginning of 2009, the market it bottomed around March 9th, mm-hmm. and that same month, it was up about 30%. It recovered all of 2009's losses just in three weeks. So the market's like a rubber band. You know, when you pull it back, when things turn, it really springs forward. A lot of people think, oh, when I'm down 30%, it will take five years of 6% to get back to where I was. That's not really how the market works. If it goes down fast, it can go up fast and vice versa. You know, if it can go up, it goes up fast, it can come down fast. And so that was really kind of a coming out nationally uh, for creative planning when we really started to get a lot of national attention and, and grow from there. And really the key was controlling the behavior of our clients, you know, making sure that they were educated, informed, that their investments matched their needs in a way where they didn't make a mistake going through that. Because you know, you, everyone goes to a cocktail party or a Christmas party or whatever, and somebody says, oh, I, I'm not investing because I lost everything in the 08 crisis or after 9-11 or the tech bubble. Well, if you're a diversified investor, that's literally impossible. Right? I mean, the market recovered from each of those and went on to a new high. It's the behavior of, the, of that person, that investor, or their advisor's behavior that really did them in. 
So, yeah, you say to an investor, you know, do you have any reason to think that the stock market will not be higher 10 years from now? And mm. they'll, of course, say, well, no. Almost certainly it'll be higher. Right. And then you say, so why are you worried about today? And it's like, well, it, it's scary for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, so that sort of you know, brings us to the top, one of the topics we were going to discuss about today, which was behavioral finance. And we right. know from the research there have been all kinds of behavioral mistakes that have been identified by academics and which seem to influence a disproportionate number of investors and leads them to do terrible mm-hmm. damage to their own financial health. And one of the ones, going back to 08 and early 09, is this tendency to extrapolate recent returns, this recency bias where whatever has happened most recently looms larger in our minds. And presumably back then, you must have seen that among some clients who are like, it's going to zero. Right. Yes. No, I think that recency bias is extremely powerful. I mean, in, in personal life and in uh, and when it comes to uh, investing. I mean, this is why if you're going in for an interview and the, and you're applying for a job, 100 other people are, you want to go as, as close to last as possible <laughs> so that they remember who you are. They're focused on what happened most recently. And when it comes to events, especially... There, it, it very much highlights things. If the market's going up, we expect it to continue to go up. If the market goes down, we expect it to continue to go down. We tend to, uh, if, if five things happen over five years, the one that happened most recently carries the most weight. And I think that the most recent bear market we had was cataclysmic, you know? And so I think this is what people, people are fearing today because it's the one that they have most top of mind. And it impacts their behavior in the sense that most people tend to be more conservative than they're supposed to be. You know, this year, money markets went over $3 trillion after averaging around $2 trillion. And people have been moving to cash while the market's going up because they feel like we're overdue for a bear market. And what's a bear market? Oh, it's what happened in 08, 09. Well, that's not the typical bear market. Typical bear market's a low 30-something percent drop. It's very temporary. You know, 08, 09 was 53% from top to bottom. It took many, many years to recover, but that wasn't normal. That was one of the three worst bear markets in history and one of the two worst in modern history. And so it's, but that recency bias is very powerful. It's causing people to be more conservative than they should probably be. Well, there's, so there's recency bias, but then layered on top of that is another key finding from the behavioral finance research, which is loss aversion. This yeah. notion that we get far more pain from losses than pleasure from gains. The one, of, one of the peculiar things about loss aversion is it can actually help during a bear market because people become so reluctant to sell out of their losers that they actually hang tough. They may not be willing to rebalance, which is what they ought to do. They may not be willing to add more, which is what they should be willing to do. But they, for goodness sake, never going to ever sell until they get back to even. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I I think it actually can help in those situations because they feel like if the market's going down and they sell, they now lock in that loss. Their net worth doesn't change that moment, right? They're at the same place. And so that aversion to that keeps them in the market, which for many people helps them grow. Sometimes it works in a very negative way though. Sometimes the market's going down and people assume it's going to continue to go down and their loss aversion causes them to sell rather than participate in further losses. But there's no question people would rather, uh, it doesn't feel as good to make a dollar as it hurts to lose a dollar. And that very powerful force of human nature can cause people to make some mistakes. Yeah, I think for a lot of investors, the, the real danger point was not so much in late 2008 in early 2009, it came in 2010, 2011, when they were back to even, mm. and like, okay, 
I finally made back my right. loss in my little mental account. You know, I'm whole again, and now I'm going to get out. Yeah. And I think the result was that a lot of people missed the rally that continued for many years after that because they got conservative too early. That, that's definitely true. And around that period, we had all the Greek debt crisis things. The market would go up and retreat. I, mean, I think it went up and down through 10,000 points a dozen times or several dozen times. It really struggled. And, it, and, and that was a, a big turnover area in the market. And you did see a lot of flight to cash during that period. So we have, you know, recency bias affects us in both bull and bear markets. We have loss aversion, which obviously kicks in during bear markets. But then once you get a long bull market, what you see is increasing self-confidence, right? People become more and more sure that they know what they're doing. And I think we saw that through 2017 and into 2018 with the FANG stocks Mm -hmm. that suddenly, oh yeah, you know, I know what I'm doing and big tech companies are the place to be and that's what I'm going to load up on. That's right. It's always, in the narrative with that, what whether it was the internet bubble or the cryptocurrency deal or the FANG stocks is, oh, everything's different now and you just don't understand how this works anymore and this is the future and I'm going to load up. But simple math says things can't go up 50% a year every year. It's <laughs> not going to happen. And anybody that knows anything about capitalism knows capitalism kills companies. I mean, it's a great idea that a company gets built around and, and eventually competitors attack that from different angles and take little segments of it until that company can't grow at that same rate anymore. And that happens 100% of the time, right? So you know, everyone talked about Sears. Oh, what a terrible story. That was an amazing success story. I mean, it lasted a century. I mean, very, very few companies make it a century. And so it, it's a little microcosm. You know, when GE dropped off the Dow, it became the last stock from the original Dow. I mean, no one would have ever dreamed back then that all of these companies would no longer be on the Dow. And so the economy's gonna progress, but it's different companies that will carry the torch. And just because you see something that seems like it's gone on forever, five years is not forever, it will find a way to unwind itself eventually. Which, of course, is a reason to diversify. There was the uh, the great study that came out of Arizona State University. I'm sure you saw it, Peter, where this finance professor looked at the results of the financial markets over the last 90 years and found that the entire gain of the S&P 500 over and above treasury bills could be explained by just 4% of the stocks and that half of the gain could be explained, I think, by just 90 companies. Mm-hmm. And of course, this, this has this perverse effect, which is you see the big winners and you say, okay, you know, yeah. I've got to own the big winners. Mm-hmm. But the problem is if you go out and you pick just one stock, the odds are you're going to end up with those 96% who underperform treasury bills. That's right. right. It's not so obvious. I mean, one year Southwest Airlines was the top performer in the S&P 500. It's very hard in advance. Instead of looking for that needle in the haystack, you buy the haystack, the needle's in there, and you're going to have that stock that lifts those returns, helps you along the way. So talking about uh, behavioral finance, I mean, one area where people tend to behave very emotionally mm. is real estate, Yeah, right? It's For many of us, it's our biggest investment, at least when we make it. Hopefully one day our portfolios will be larger. Um, and not only is it a big investment, but it's a complex investment, right? It involves, it involves leverage. It involves thinking through both mm. price appreciation and the fact that you get to live in the place. When people talk, when you talk to people about real estate, how do you explain it? Well, I think the... You have to divide it into several different categories. So one, you have your primary residence. Mm -hmm. Some people are asking about second homes. 
Third, people are asking about uh, buying it as an investment, private real estate, like buying a duplex and renting it out. And then there's people that are in the business of real estate. Um, so when you say, I, I tell people real estate's a nice diversifier, but I don't expect it to do as well as the stock market. And this makes people absolutely hysterical, right? <laughs> I mean, this is especially people in the real estate business. So let's, let's start with the primary residence. If you, if you look at your net worth statement, there's assets that bring money to you and assets that take money away from you. We tend to look at it as assets and liabilities. The house shows up in the asset column. So we think, oh, that's, that's a wonderful thing. I should buy more of that. Well, it might be in the asset column, but it's taking cash flow away from us, right? We have maintenance costs, taxes, insurance, and so on. Not a great investment. If we took all that money and put it in the S&P 500 30 years from now, when that mortgage is paid off, we'd have more money in the S&P 500. That's almost a certainty, and it would be by many times of a factor. But we need a home to live in, right? And homes are not about the financial side, they're about the emotional side. I have a nice home. I'm not living in a $10,000 hut, even though it would be better financially to do that because I want a place to live and to be with my family and I want to do what I want to do there. But I'm not buying that home on the idea this is a wonderful investment. For most Americans, it winds up being their biggest asset because it's forced savings. You're forced to pay that mortgage. You wake up 15 years or 30 years later, your house is paid off and you're able to then downsize homes and then take that money and go live off it. That, that's so, interesting for a lot of people. Yeah, so, so before you go on, let me just throw in a quick number here. So if you look at real estate prices over the past 40 years, real estate prices over the past 40 years have increased one percentage point a year faster than inflation. Mm. Just one percentage point a year faster than inflation. And then if you take all the costs involved in real estate, fact that you have to maintain your home, mm. that the homeowner's insurance, the property taxes, and you subtract it from that price appreciation, the net result is that you're probably only breaking even on your real estate, and you may, might even be underwater. And that doesn't mean a home is a bad investment, because as you point out, you get to live in the place. That fact that you are able to rent your home to yourself, that you have this imputed rent, that mm. is the huge return from owning real estate if it's if it's your own home. The problem is you immediately consume it. That's right. right? So it's not an investment. And even with the home, um, it doesn't even make sense to own a home, even from the rent perspective, unless you're going to be there for it, maybe 10 years. But somebody who's going to buy a home and sell it within five years, you're gonna have a commission to get in, a commission to get out, you, you may as well rent. So for somebody who's gonna be in it for a long period of time, it makes some sense, doesn't compare to other investments, but you get that imputed rent if you're a long-term. Right, so that's your primary residence. Yeah. Now, second homes, Peter. Second home is a 100% emotional play. A lot of people are like, oh, I, but this worked out wonderfully. I'm gonna just use a personal example. So our family would go to the, the Gulf of Mexico every year. Uh, my in-laws had a place there, or my kids loved going there. But every single year, for seven or eight years, my in-laws said, hey, you know what, Peter? This is condo's pretty crowded. <laughs> and I said, you know what? You're right. I mean, it's a two-bedroom, and I'm bringing my family of five in there, and they, they love their daughter, and they probably like me okay, but they didn't need all five of them. You know, all of them. So, um, and they were already sharing that with one of their other son's families. So another condo came for sale, and they're right in the middle of the 08 crisis. And um, it was a 200-something thousand dollar condo, and we bought it. And it was at the bottom of the market. I mean, these same places have been selling for you know 50% more just a year earlier. And we've used it. Every year we've gone several times a year uh, for what's been now a decade. Um, and it's gone up in value $100,000. You would think that is an amazing investment. 
perfect time to get in by luck and just because I, I my father-in-law was not timing his hey it's time to get your own place to the stock market it just happened to be down and the real estate market at the same time obviously was suffering and here we are there's been a recovery and so you think I would think that was an amazing investment but I have those things you were talking about I've paid insurance and I've had the homeowners association dues and I've paid my taxes and that's more than the money that it appreciated. So even though someone buying and selling thinks, oh, this is great, they're forgetting all of the costs they had along the way. In fact, it turns out, I would have been better financially to go to the Ritz-Carlton every year uh, for a week uh, in, in Florida from a financial perspective. But I don't regret the decision because it was never a financial decision. It was an emotional decision. That place means something to the family. We know we want to go back to that same place all of the time. But whenever a client asks me, is this a good financial thing to buy this cabin in Colorado or this condo in Florida or this place in California? The answer is almost certainly not. The reason to do this is because you are sure you want to go back to the same place all the time and that tradition means something to you and your family. If you're sure of that, then understand that you would be better off with other, you know, quote investments, but that that's not the primary reason we're we're doing this. And that's how I feel about about second homes. Okay, so second homes. Now, rental properties. Yep. Rental properties, different story. Now we've finally moved to a category where things are bringing money to you, right? So instead of owning publicly traded real estate, you might buy a duplex, you rent it out, you're willing to deal with the hassle of all of this, you're willing to lease the place out, you're willing to meet people there, you're willing to change the carpet when it needs to be changed and call the plumber. Uh, are you going to make some money doing that? Absolutely, you will, especially... If you only, if it's $100,000 duplex, you put $20,000 down. Well, if it appreciates over five years to be worth $120,000, you've doubled your $20,000 initial investment. So the power of leverage confuses people. They, they inflate their returns, but really it's the power of leverage. We could take a stock portfolio and leverage it too, but that makes people much more uncomfortable. Um, so with that private real estate, we've got more hassle. Uh, but we've got more of a reward. And I would expect to get a low double-digit rate of return from owning investment real estate. Yeah, well, I would uh, just throw in three points here mm -hmm. just on the, the rental real estate. Because I've thought about this a lot and yeah. never done it. Uh, one reason is, you know, uh, none of my stocks ever called me up in the middle of the night and told me the <laughs> toilet is broken. Right. You know, whereas, you know, that is a risk with rental real estate. Two, it is a big undiversified bet. Yes. Uh, and three, it is indeed a leveraged bet. In fact... Owning a piece of a single property with leverage, I would argue, is riskier than having a diversified stock portfolio. Uh, and while people look at those leverage gains, your example, you, know, you put down $20,000 on a $100,000 property and it increases $200,000, you know, it looks like yeah. your money has gone up sixfold. But remember, in many cases, the cost of leverage matches the benefits of leverage. So how much did you pay in mortgage interest over that period it took for the property's price to double? You might well find that it's pretty close in terms of of those two numbers, and the leverage really didn't make you a whole lot of money. Well, the leverage works backwards. I mean, you put 20000 into buy a $100,000 property, and we have a real estate crisis, and the real estate's worth 80000 you know, your, your net worth, the, the net worth of that's gone down 100%. So it can go against you um, as well, for sure. Though you can't always give in to foreclosure, but <laughs> not something true. we want to recommend. Well, and I, I think that this is the risk, this is where we are, the risk reward continuum. So you were dealing with, we've got more hassle, and I mean, you could say, well, I'm going to hire a property manager, that's going to dilute your return. Uh, now, I would never tell somebody to put all their eggs in one basket. If you 
if you've got a net worth that and you want to get in private real estate, will you? Do I think even unleveraged you will get a better return than the publicly traded real estate market? I do, um, but you're going to deal with more hassle and less liquidity and things like that. So it's a risk reward decision that you have to make to go that step. But you could make a lot of money uh, doing that. You can diversify yourself. Let's put it that way. Do doing that. And then you've got the last step, which is being in the business. So I have people go, oh, Peter, I hear you talk about real estate and you're crazy because you know I buy places and I remodel them and I, well, you're not a real estate investor. You are in the real estate business. I mean, this is a totally different story. This is the difference between investing in McDonald's or Panera and opening up a sandwich shop, right? If you are buying a property and remodeling it and, that's that's not a, that's not a real estate investment the way we're talking about it where you're buying something that produces income and selling it you're in the business even the IRS will say you're in the business and they'll tax you at a higher rate so it's just a whole different world and that world lives and dies by are you a good business operator just it's no different than somebody asking me does it make sense to open a restaurant well it depends or if you're a good restaurateur and you're a good business person you might be successful there a lot of people aren't same thing when you're in the business of real estate of course some developers and turnaround specialists are going to make a ton of money. That's their day-to-day business. That's a totally different deal. So actually, just a, a quick pet peeve on this, which is remodeling. So I can't tell you how <laughs> many homeowners I've met have said, you know, we spent $100,000, we put in this new kitchen, and we went to sell. Our house was worth $200,000 more. And this is just delusional. <laughs> you know, your house is worth $200,000 more because the property market right. went up over time. In terms of that actual remodeling project, the statistics tell us that probably you will recoup less than 50% of the money yeah. you make, and that's only if you sell soon after you did the remodeling project. And that's only some remodeling projects even, where yeah. you even get that, right? Right, so there's um, something called Remodeling Magazine, and they have a survey they do every year called the Cost Versus Value Survey, mm-hmm. and you look at that, and the return on these home improvement projects is often sort of 50 to 90%, but that assumes you sell within a year. The longer you wait to sell, the worse your new kitchen is gonna look and the less money you're gonna recoup. When you remodel your home, it is not an investment decision. It is a consumption decision and you should only do it if the pleasure you receive is comparable with the dollars that you're putting out. I completely agree with that. I tell my my clients that all the time, that eventually your house will regress to the the neighborhood, (laughs) which is why you see, um, good or bad, you know, if you buy the cheapest house on the block, you're gonna benefit disproportionately. And that's why I think you see that remodel effect diminish over time. So anyway, wrapping up another podcast here, it's time for your tip of the month, Peter. All right, this tip of the month is really easy and a lot of people don't do it, but you can accelerate your contributions to your 401k. The key here is we don't want to lose out on the match. So you want to go to the person in your HR department that handles this. Instead of giving a little bit of your paycheck throughout the year to max out your 401k, max out as early as you can, but without losing the full match that the employer gives you. And what that does is it allows your money to be in the market longer, and it benefits from compounding because of that. So you're investing the same dollars, but you get a better outcome. And my tip for the month, Peter, is tell family stories to your kids that illustrate lessons about money. So if you try to lecture your kids, and we've all tried to do this, it's remarkably unsuccessful. They will not listen to you. But if you tell family stories that 
illustrate the values that you think are important, they will remember those stories. And so, for instance, when I was growing up, the story that my three siblings and I regularly heard was how my maternal grandfather blew the family fortune. He inherited the equivalent of millions of dollars, and throughout his life, he dissipated that money on farming. It wasn't wasn't wine, women, and songs. It was on farming. He won. He ran one gentleman farm after another. When the capital was depleted, he would trade down to a smaller farm, free up more capital, and then spend that. Eventually, the farms got too small, and that was when he retired. Yeah. <laughs> and we, four siblings, all heard that story. And one of the consequences is that even though we're all remarkably different people, we were all super careful about money. If you want to teach your kids about money, tell them family stories that illustrate the lessons that you want to learn. For instance, if you had hard times in your 20s and you really struggled to get by, you lived in this, you know, shack. It was, you know, there were mice. You can dress up the stories. Okay to lie. There were a few cockroaches, whatever it is. Tell them the stories so that they understand that when they get out into the workforce, they will need to be thrifty and they will need to be careful about money. And it works. It's good advice. All right, Peter. So this is the end of our most recent podcast. Thanks for chatting with me. And this is Jonathan Clements, and we are Down the Middle. This commentary is provided for general information purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. Past performance of any market results is no assurance of future performance. The information contained herein has been obtained from sources deemed to be reliable but is not guaranteed.